Um, we're talking about heaven, and I heard a story. A cat dies and goes to heaven. St. Peter meets him at the gate and says, you've been a good cat all these years. Anything you desire is yours. All you have to do is ask. And the cat says, well, meow. I've lived my life with a poor family on a farm and had to sleep on hardwood floors. And Peter says, say no more. And instantly a big fluffy cushion appears. A few days later, six mice are killed in a tragic accident and they go to heaven. God meets them at the gate with the same offer that he made the cat. The mice said, all our lives we've had to run. We've been chased by cats, dogs, and even women with brooms. If we could only have a pair of roller skates, then we wouldn't have to run anymore. God says, say no more. And instantly each mouse is fitted with a beautiful pair of tiny roller skates. But a week later, Peter is checking up for God to see how the cat's doing, and the cat's sound asleep on his lovely big fluffy pillow. Peter wakes him gently and asks, so how's things going? Are you happy here? And the cat yawns and stretches and says, I've never been happier in my life. And those meals on wheels you keep sending over are the best. (laughs) Do you know, 50 years ago, even 20 years ago, Christians were accused of this. You're too heavenly minded to be of earthly use. You ever heard that? I think the opposite has happened. I think Christians in the 21st century are too earthly minded to be of much heavenly use. C.S. Lewis said that. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. I think that's a good quote. That those in history who have done the most in this world are those who have focused on the next because they know, as the illustration I did with the string this morning, that this life is short, eternity is long, and therefore we spend our life for Jesus. But those who are most focused on this life do the little, littlest, not just in this, but also for the least. And yet as Christians have shied away a bit from talking about heaven, it feels like the secular world want to talk about heaven more. There's been a lot of movies and a lot of books have come out in recent years, in case you haven't noticed. Um, what's the one? I've got the trailer for it there. What's the movie called? Heaven is for Real. Some of you have seen the book Yellow Cover, New York Times bestseller. And it became such a bestseller they made it into a movie because people are fascinated with heaven. But, uh, you know, I'm sure there's many truths and many things in that that are accurate. We don't, I don't know the background of the story. I don't know their faith journey or whatever. But when it comes to heaven, where do we always go? We go to the word of God as we do with everything else because heaven is his home. And if, if, we want, if I wanted to know about your house, you'd be the best person to tell me. If I want to know about heaven, I go to God and see what he says about it. And, uh, and so much of our perception about heaven is not shaped by the Bible. It's shaped by just things people say. As I joked about it a bit this morning. You know, Aunt Sadie's up there knitting and Johnny's up there playing golf and, and all this sort of... And we say all this stuff, but I, I just I want us to get back to Scripture. It could be true, it might not be true, but let's, let's not limit ourselves only to what this says because it doesn't tell us... It tells us everything we need to know. It doesn't tell us everything we want to know. Do you understand that? So there's things this will not answer, like, is there golf in heaven? There could be. There might not be. Are there pets in heaven? There could be. There might not be. We will see later that there are animals in heaven. But I think we, we want to take Scripture and see what it tells us is definitely true about heaven. So 
I've got eight questions. I don't think I'm going to get through them all um, when I look at my notes here, but we're going to skim some of them, go more in-depth into some of them that are more important. The first one is, where is heaven? Good question. Where is heaven? You ask the average person, where is heaven? And most people will say, it's up there. He's gone up there. Heaven's up there in the sky somewhere. It's like a distant galaxy in the cloud where we all float around. And sometimes when the Bible talks about heaven, it actually is talking about the sky. It says the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. That is the sky. It says that in Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice it says heavens, not heaven. There are various heavens in Scripture. And actually, I don't know if I, I have the, the, the verses on this because I, I just was thinking about it again on the way as I was driving in tonight. It says, the Bible, or it says in the Bible, God created the heavens and the earth. And so there's, I, from what I see in Scripture, there's three heavens. The first one is the sky, the stars, all the stuff that we look up and see in the sky. That's one way the Bible describes the heavens. The second way is this, the second heaven. And that is the invisible spiritual realm that's all around us right now, which contains angels and demons, angels and fallen angels. That there's an invisible spiritual realm around us at this time, and it's the heavenly realms that the Apostle Paul talks about. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual principalities in the heavenly realms. That's Ephesians 6, verse 12. That, that all around us right now, there's an invisible spiritual world. So that's the second heaven. But then there's a third heaven. That Paul says, I knew a man, which we all know is heaven, but he's trying to be humble. I knew a man who went to the third heaven. And the third heaven is that domain of the invisible spiritual realm which is reserved for God and God only. That the second heaven has the angels and demons, good and evil. But there is a section of heaven which is, which is the throne room that we read about in Revelation this morning. It's the place where God dwells, where nothing evil happens, where there is no sin, no darkness, and no sickness, that God alone has complete authority. So I believe that the scripture teaches that right now there's three heavens. What we can see in the sky, the second heaven, the invisible realm all around us, and the third heaven where God dwells. In John 4, Jesus says this. You remember the woman at the well? Jesus says this, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, God is not a physical being. He is a spiritual being, yet he was able to speak and the world was made. So the best way to describe heaven, it is the realm in which God exists. It's the dimension in which God exists. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says this, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Simple enough. Psalm 115.16 says, the highest heavens, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man. So when Jesus came to earth, it wasn't so much that he came from up there to down here. It was that he stepped across a realm from the invisible spiritual realm into the visible physical realm. He bridged the gulf between the two worlds and he went from having a spiritual body which was invisible to a Physical, visible, physical, visible body here on earth. And so we have the physical world that we see. We have the invisible world that we can't see. But one day, the Bible teaches that there is going to be a merging and a recreation. That heaven and earth are going to come back together. And there will be a glorious renewal of life 
on earth. And so rather than us going up there, our ultimate place in heaven is not up there. It is heaven coming down here. God comes down here and lives among us. And that's the bit that I think a lot of us miss in the new creation. I'm showing my age here. But one of my favorite songs when I was a kid was Belinda Carlisle. Heaven is a place on earth. They say in heaven, love comes first. We'll make heaven. I can't sing. Um, but actually, she was kind of accurate. Heaven is ultimately going to be a place on earth. Heaven right now is the invisible spiritual realm where God dwells. But one day the Bible teaches that heaven and earth are going to merge. Look at what it says in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. So we will not spend eternity up there as spirits, but as resurrected humans here on earth. And we'll get to that in a second. When we think about sin and salvation, we tend to think individualistically. We talk about individual souls being saved. We talk about sin affecting individuals, and that is true. But we also need to understand that when Adam and Eve sinned, the whole of creation was affected and infected. Every part of our creation around us was damaged by the fall. The environment, the ecosystem, the seas, the land, and the crops... All of it's affected by sin. That's why Paul says this in Romans 8. There's a lot of scripture in here tonight, folks. I've spent my whole afternoon doing PowerPoints. Uh, The scripture waits in eager, or the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in the hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. In other words, while Adam and Eve fell and the sin infected the human race, it actually infected and affected the whole of creation. All of creation is groaning and longing for something to happen that brings it back to the original state that God created it in the book of Genesis, to bring it back to Eden, to bring it back to perfection, where God said it is good and so right now it is not always good and 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 there's something within the soul of creation that says this is not how it should be that's why we have natural disasters that's why we have famine that's why we have earthquakes that's why we have so much going on in our earth because the earth was contaminated and destroyed by human sin that sin didn't just impact humans it impacted creation But one day, God is going to take this world he has created and he's going to remake it and make it new. I'm sure some of you love those programs on TV that they take houses and gardens and transform them and people. (laughs) You don't do that so much anymore. You remember 10 years younger and stuff like that? Used to take people who were a bit rough looking and take them away. I mean, let's just be honest, they did. Take them away for six weeks, hide them from their husband. Spend a fortune on them, give them a personal trainer, plastic surgery, bring them back. Their husband cried because he'd got a new wife. The wife smiled because she was thinking of the trainer who had just trained her for the last six weeks. But they, but they do it with houses and gardens and the best bit is the reveal. You know, they take people out of the house and they, how they don't know that they're doing something to their house, I don't know. But they take them away for a few days and they get the, everybody in and they come back and it's just been totally... And it's just a, the big reveal. It's all been restored. And one day, the whole of creation is going to undergo an extreme makeover. 
The old will be gone. All things will be made new. Back to the way it was meant to be before sin entered the world. You see, in the Bible, there's two words for new. There's neos and kenos. Neo was in the movie Matrix, yes, sorry, just a random thought there. Neos and Kainos. Neos means completely new that didn't exist before. So when God created the earth in the first place, it was a Neos creation. We call it ex nihilo. So something came out of nothing. There was absolutely nothing there before. So if you were to buy a plot of land, if you were to buy a field that was completely uh, overgrown, you build a house there, that is a Neos house. It has never been there before. It is completely new. Kainos means something that is new, but it's been improved on the old. And so if you buy an old house in the same field and fix it up and make it beautiful again, even though it's been destroyed before, that is a Kainos house. Do you understand the difference? That, that a neos, it's never been kainos, is yes, there was something there before, but you've taken it and you have restored it. And when the Bible talks about when God restores the heavens and the earth, he's not going to do away completely with the old thing. He's going to take it and he's going to restore it back to the way it was created to be. It will be better in quality, superior in character, it will be like when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. The, 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 if you like, the, the heart of it is still there, but it's going to be so much superior and so much better and transformed into the way God wants it to be perfectly. What else does it say in Revelation 21? And I realize we'll be looking at this in about two months again, probably, some of it. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed from her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. So God comes down and dwells among us. We don't live ultimately up there as spirits in heaven, but God comes down and lives with us on this new earth. If you like, God moves house. He takes up residence at the center of the creation he loves. And his loving presence fills every part of that creation. So right now, we have a physical world and an invisible world. One day the Bible teaches those two are going to become one. And God will dwell in the center of a new earth. What will heaven look like? Question number two. What will heaven look like well we've seen that earth will be recreated and restored to its original perfection heaven will come down god will make his dwelling place at the center of this will be a holy city the new jerusalem it's a place where god will have his throne look at what it says about this new jerusalem it is prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband us men get it fairly easy at weddings don't we i mean we just go and harass it Spray a bit of links, a bit of gel, we're done. We're ready. I mean, essentially, that's kind of what I did on the wedding day. Wrote a speech an hour before it um, and, uh, and showed up. Um, Bex did a little bit more than that. Um, it was like Bridezilla and Trini and Susanna and a few other programs rolled into one. I know she wasn't that bad, but, you know, she tried different dresses, different shops, tan. I don't, I don't even know what 
goes on. I don't know what you do. You have appointments. I just you have appointments. When a woman says she's got an appointment, man, don't ask. There's probably some stuff you don't need to know, okay? Um, but they've got a lot of appointments in the days coming up to the wedding, okay? Appointments to get groomed or whatever that is. Us men, we don't have. But it's because on her wedding day, she is going to look beautiful. She's going to look stunning. She wants to look her best for her groom. And the Bible says that, 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 that heaven comes down like a bride, beautifully dressed. In other words, it's perfection. It's exactly the way God wants it to be. He wants to give us his best. He wants to give us his most beautiful. There's going to be no flaws, no blemishes. It's going to be absolutely stunning. But like when the door opens at the back of the church and everybody goes, wow, we're going to see heaven and we're going to go, wow. That is beautiful. That is stunning. That is breathtaking. That's what the Bible's trying to convey. Not that heaven looks like a big woman in a white dress, but that it is absolutely stunning. It's beyond description. Look at what Paul says in First. Corinthians 2.9, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. We can't even begin to imagine. I can only imagine. No, I can't. I can't even begin to imagine because it is so much more than I ever could. And any picture or any image I have in my head will be totally inadequate. But the Bible does try, and I've seen this in Revelation, it tries to express the inexpressible. It tries to describe the indescribable. And what else does it say about this beautiful city? It's shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like it of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. The wall was made of jasper. The city of pure gold as pure as glass the foundations were decorated with every kind of precious stone then it goes through all the stones and in verse 21 we get to the 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 famous pearly gates and the golden streets the 12 gates were like 12 pearls each gate made up of a single pearl the great street of the city was like pure gold like transparent glass Sorry, I have an illustration. I heard a story about a man who found out it was time to go to heaven. and He asked the Lord if he could bring just one thing. And the Lord said no. But finally after he kept asking and asking and asking, God said, okay, you can bring one thing with you. And so the man packed a suitcase full of gold. When he arrived in heaven, the angel said, sorry, you can't bring that in here. And he said, well, God told me I could. He said, okay. They said, but by the way, what's in there anyway? The man opened the bag and they looked in and they said, oh, it's all right, it's just pavement. (laughs) Are there really streets of gold in heaven? We don't know, but what it's trying to do is describe that the things that are most precious to to us here on earth are common in heaven. The things that we pour our lives into trying to accumulate, the trinkets, the, the things that we deem as being the most valuable here are like tarmac in heaven. I don't know if there's big pearls up there. But it's just trying to describe something. It's trying to take the most beautiful things we have here on earth and say, this is not even close, but it's just trying to give you an idea of what heaven's like. There's no shortage. There's no scarcity. It's beyond your wildest dreams. Outside of the New Jerusalem, so that's the city, we have no reason to believe that there won't be fields and flowers and animals. We do read that the lion will lie down with the lamb, don't we? So I think there's animals there. Not cats, but animals. <laughs> animals don't, or cats don't classify as animals. Um, 
I do believe there'll be rivers and lakes. And I, we'll get into this. And I know it's said in, in Revelation 21, there's no longer any sea. But in those days, the sea, um, the sea represented chaos and disorder. And so what it's really saying is that there's no more chaos and disorder. It's stopped that there's, and I'm glad because I like the beach. And so uh, I do believe there will be water in heaven because in the first creation there was water. And so when God restores it back to the original creation, I have no reason to believe there won't be water and beaches and sunbeds. And so what about the devil? Let's keep going. What about the devil? Where's he at this point? Well, we have said that the, this invisible spiritual world is where God lives because he's spirit. God is the king of the spirits, the supreme creator and ruler, and he's seated on heaven's throne. We saw that this morning. And in this invisible world, there's two other types of preachers. There's good angels and bad angels. There's God's angels, and then there's angels who follow Satan, also known as demons or fallen angels. In the beginning, God created everything. It was good. There was no sin or evil. So that's Genesis 1. Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. He creates Adam and Eve, it's very good. Genesis 3, the serpent appears. So somewhere, we don't know how long that timeline was, somewhere between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, evil entered the world. Rebellion took place in the heavens. There was a fall in terms of the heavenly angels. What happened was this. One angel, he may have been an archangel called Lucifer, got proud and decided, I want the worship that God's given. Some even say he was the worship leader in heaven. Um, but that he started to want the worship for himself. He wanted to be equal with God, so he tried to stage a rebellion and one third of the angels joined him. Look at what it says in Isaiah 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to earth, you who once led low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the amount of the assembly and on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. So Lucifer, Satan, and his angels try to overthrow God and the good angels. They got the lion beat out of them. They got expelled from heaven, from the dwelling place of God, and they got thrown out, and there was nowhere back, way back. But where did they go? They came down to earth. But on earth, he had no authority. He had no right, because this was God's good earth, and when God created Adam and Eve, what did he do? He gave them authority, didn't he? I give you dominion over the earth. And so Satan comes down to earth and he has no authority unless it is given to him. And that's where the fall comes in. The only way he could have authority would be for Adam and Eve to give it to him. And basically they handed over the rights to rule instead of them ruling under God's authority. He deceived them into thinking that God was withholding something from them. And they decided to believe Satan instead of God. They take the authority, if you like, the keys that God has given them, and they hand them over to Satan. And they've opened the door, and they've said, Satan, you have access all areas to the earth. And that's why the scripture says in the New Testament, post-cross, post-resurrection, in, in 1 John, 
1 John 5.19, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Three times in John's gospel, Satan is described as this, the prince of this world. And remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Satan says, all this belongs to me and I can give it to who I wish, remember? And Jesus doesn't argue with him. Because when Adam and Eve fell, they gave Satan authority over this present earth. It didn't just affect the two of them, it affected and infected the whole of creation. And ever since, Satan has been trying to um, advance his power and rule. That's why Peter says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's described as the thief who comes to steal, kill and destroy. And like I said earlier, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So God's good creation, which he created perfect, has been affected and infected by evil because we gave the authority over to Satan. And his job now is to do as much damage damage and to cause as much misery as he can. And that is why we have pain and suffering and violence and earthquakes and tsunamis. His goal is always the same, to take worship away from God and have people follow him. The whole of creation is under a curse right now. So this invisible spiritual world has God and his angels in it, but it also has the evil forces of Satan and the rest of the fallen angels. The other group that make it up are the human spirits of those who have died. The invisible spiritual world has human spirits in it. So what happens to Satan, his fallen angels, and the human spirits, of those who have died outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, we need to know that Satan has already been defeated. When Jesus rose from the grave, he conquered Satan, sin, death, and hell. He knows he's on the losing side. He's been defeated, but he has not yet been destroyed. He has been defeated at the resurrection, but he has not yet been destroyed. And so in the meantime, he has one goal, and that is to cause as much havoc as possible because the Bible says he knows his time is short. Look at Revelation thirteen twelve. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. That's what we've just said. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. He knows his days are numbered. We are living between the first and second coming of Christ. And during this period, Satan is defeated but not destroyed. One day he will be completely destroyed. Those of you who know your history know that between D-Day and VE Day, there was almost a year. D-Day, the battle was won. Once they landed in the beaches of Normandy, the war was essentially over. But it was another 11 months before victory in Europe was declared. When Jesus rose from the grave, that was our D-Day. The battle was over. Victory was assured. But we are in that place between D-Day and V-Day when Christ comes back and all things are submitted to him and the devil is thrown into the lake of fire. And in between, Satan is trying to do as much damage as he can. We know that Jesus will return. This time not as a humble carpenter, but in glory as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we'll look at what happens then in a minute or two. But that is the question four. And we're getting through this. Okay. We're halfway there. What happens when we die? That's really what we want to know. As I said this morning, if I drop dead right now, what happens to me in the next five minutes? Apart from you all do the conga. Um, 
wasn't that funny. The minister was talking to the Sunday school class about how little boys and girls need to be Christians to go to heaven and they need to be good. At the end, he wanted to make sure he had got his point across that they needed to be Christians. And so he said, where do we all want to go when we die? And boys and girls all said, heaven, heaven, heaven. And he said, well, what do we have to do to get to heaven? And they all shouted, be dead. And most people, if you ask them what happens when they die, they say something along the lines of, we all go to heaven, or good people to heaven, good people go to heaven, bad people go somewhere else, but they're always in the good category. Do you notice that? When somebody dies, everybody goes to heaven. Like, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've officiated probably 200 funerals, and there's never been one that somebody's went, I wonder if they're in heaven. Because everybody wants to think their loved ones are in heaven, don't we? We all do. I'm the same. Um, because we all want to believe that everybody, apart from the people we don't like, the short list or the longer list, or the people who laugh at me when I talk about doing a conga, um, we like to think that they're not. But, but we do. We, we generally, if you were to say... How many people go to... People would probably think about 90% of people go to heaven, and yet the Bible teaches us a narrow road. We've already seen that one day this physical world is going to be renewed and recreated, and we're going to live there. But in the meantime... Okay, so what happens in the meantime before heaven comes back to earth? What happens in the meantime, right now, if one of us dies? What happens? At this present time, heaven, and by heaven we mean the invisible spiritual realm, the world in which all spiritual beings exist, God, angels, good, bad, the spiritual... Every human being has, who has ever died. And that's, that's, that's what we call heaven. As humans, okay, and this is the, the bit. As humans, we're more than physical beings. You know that. Some people believe we're made up of body and soul. Others would say body, soul, and spirit. I would tend to go with body, soul, and spirit. If you disagree with me, that's okay. Some of the eminent theologians would just say we're body and soul. Soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. Your body is your body. To me, your spirit is that invisible part of you that was created eternally. It's that part of you that was created to connect with God. It's, it's, and so, I understand why people call it your soul. That's what they mean, probably spirit. I just prefer to differentiate because the Bible talks in a number of times in the New Testament about your spirit and your soul separately. Like uh, the word of God is as sharper than a double-edged sword, able to separate soul and spirit. And may God purify, Paul says, your whole soul and spirit. And so I do believe we're tripartite beings. We're body, soul, and spirit. And by the sounds of it, most of you are right because you agree with me. Um, I do. And so when we die, the physical part of us is the part that dies. Your body. I don't care how many multivitamins you've taken, how much Botox you've got, how often you've been to the gym, how much plastic surgery you've had. When you die, your body dies, and you're put into the ground or you're cremated. Okay? That's the part of you that dies. But your spirit and your soul live on. Your body stops working, your heart stops pumping, but your, the spiritual, I'm going to say your spirit actually lives on. Your spiritual part of you lives on. Jesus at the point of death said this in Luke 23, 46. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Not my soul, my spirit. 
Stephen, the first Christian martyr, said this in Acts 7, when they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Both Jesus and Stephen were expecting a part of them, their spirit, when they died, to pass immediately from this life to be with heaven and God, to be with God in heaven. Is this the way we stay forever? As spirit beings, absolutely not. God created us to be fully human, spirit, soul, and body. And it is his intention that when all things are made right, that once again we will have a physical body, a new resurrected body. We'll look at this in a second in more detail. But if that is the case, if one day we're going to have a new physical body, what happens to our spirits in the meantime? That's still the question. If I die right now, where does my spirit go? Is it some sort of suspended animation? Is it purgatory, a place of limbo between heaven and hell? This is a tricky one. Remember the thief on the cross? Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, not someday, today. Most scholars believe that those who belong to God, when you die, when your spirit leaves your body, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a faith in God, your spirit goes to paradise, this place in the presence of God, the heavenly realm place where God is complete, rulership, authority, and perfection. It's an unbroken atmosphere of love, joy, and praise. But it is an intermediate heaven. This is what we need to understand. Where we live in God's presence until Jesus returns, there's a new heaven and a new earth, and we're given a resurrected body. Are you with me? This is important because this is the stuff that, that I've found myself having discussions in living rooms with recently for people who have lost loved ones. That your spirit goes to be with the Lord in perfection and glory right now, but one day Jesus is returning. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. We will be given a resurrected body, a physical body, and our spirits and our new physical bodies will be reunited and we will live in a physical earth and a physical body. We will definitely go to be with the Lord. I think we need to understand that. There's no suspended state. Remember Paul's dilemma in Philippians 1? He's got this, he's like, am I to go on living in the body? I mean, this is going to mean more fruitful labor. I can do more. But what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two because I desire to depart and be with Christ. In other words, he said, I can be here right now and I know that there's people I can reach, but I just want to be with Jesus right now. If I depart right now, I know I'm going to be with Jesus. Paul was clear that he would be with Jesus, not stuck in some place of sleep sleep or limbo. That's paradise. That's what I'm going to call it, paradise. I believe it's as good a name as anything else. What about those who aren't God's people, who aren't Christians? Where do they go? Well, the Bible seems to indicate they go to a place called Hades. It's the place where unrighteous spirits are kept until the day of judgment. Again, this is an intermediate hell. Hades until Jesus returns and Satan is cast into the eternal lake of fire. And the best example of this is the parable that we studied last month when we were talking about hell, Um, the rich man and Lazarus. Um, I'm not going to read it all, but I'll go to the middle. But the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And I know it's a parable, but it's trying to express something. He said, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to, sip, to tip 
I need to be careful with my words are, to tip his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. So Abraham replied, Son, remember in that your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, this is a bit, between us there is a great chasm that has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to there cannot, why would anyone want to do that? Nor can anyone cross from there to us. In other words, once you die, there's no crossing over back and forth. Once you die, your eternal destiny is determined and no prayers, no rosaries, no intercessions, no anything can change that eternal destiny. There's a great chasm that can't be crossed. In other words, when we die, it's too late. We make our decision for Christ while we're on this earth. And if we don't choose a relationship with Christ now, why should we want one for eternity? If I don't want to be friends with you now, why would I want to spend eternity with you? God's people go to be with Jesus in paradise. Those who reject God go to Hades and they're separated from the presence of God. So that's what happens, I believe, immediately when we die. But what happens after that? Well, one day Jesus will return and there will be a final battle. Well, it's not really a battle because the victory's already decided. Satan will be destroyed. Every human will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and there will be a separation, the righteous to eternal life and those who rejected Christ to eternal hell and separation from God. Revelation 20 says this, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into a lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. If you want to know who the beast and false prophet are, keep coming on Sunday mornings. We're getting there. They will be tormented day and night forever. Then I saw a great white throne. (laughs) Back to the throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fed from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 21-27. Nothing impure will ever enter it. This is talking about heaven. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This book of life. The moment you turn from sin, repent, turn to Christ, your name goes in a book. And it can never be blotted out. I want to tell you that. Some of you need to hear that tonight. Because it's written in the blood of Christ. And there's no way to erase that. And some of you need to hear that for your children tonight. And your loved ones. If they have truly, at some stage in their life, repented of sin, if they've bowed the need, not just made an emotional decision, but if they've been truly saved at any point in their life, their name is in the book of life. Truly saved. And nothing can erase that. And I believe that those who are truly saved at some point come back to the Lord. At some point. It may be a year. It may be on their deathbed. But I have very rarely seen someone who's truly saved die apart from the Lord. Because the Bible says in John chapter 10 that he doesn't let go of us. The Father doesn't let go of us and the Son doesn't let go of us. 
So my eternal security is not dependent on my ability to cling hold of him, but it's because he clings hold of me. And if my name is written in the book of life, there is no eraser pen that can get rid of that, but it has to be written there to begin with. That's the thing I want to say. It's not some superficial decision, not some emotional decision, but if you've truly repented, truly come to Christ, there is nothing that can ever change that. I used to have a couple of friends who were bouncers back in my wild and debaucherous days when we used to go out clubbing in Belfast. We made good friends with the two bouncers in a place called the Pothouse. It was kind of like a church. And uh, <coughs> Larry and Danny were their names. And uh, it was great because no matter how big the queue was when we arrived, we were always brought to the queue and let in. And you felt like a VIP, even though you weren't. And, uh, and, uh, and, 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 but they... We would stand chatting to them and we would watch who they would let in and who they wouldn't let in. And, and there was criteria. If you weren't trainers, you didn't get in. If you looked a bit rough, you didn't get in. If you'd been drinking too much, you didn't get in. Because different clubs, different organizations, different societies have different rules and criteria for who they let in and who they don't. Sometimes it's about your family being part of something for generations. Sometimes it's about how much money you have. Sometimes it's if you can afford the membership fees. <clears throat> What's the criteria for getting into heaven? Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's it. Doesn't matter how rich you are. Doesn't matter what your family background is. Doesn't matter how you're dressed. If your name is in the Book of Life, you're allowed in. And I can stand before God with confidence on that last day, that judgment day, not based on me and what I do, thank the Lord, but because of what Jesus has done. So who can get into heaven Everyone can get into heaven. It is not the Lord's desire that any should perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But not everyone will. Because some people accept the good news and some people refuse it. All we have to do is place our trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there's lots of people who if you say, do you want to go to heaven, they'll say yes. I mean, most people. Try this tomorrow. Do you want to go to heaven? Do you want a relationship with Jesus? We're not so sure. We like the idea of heaven. We just don't like the idea of submitting and surrendering our lives to Christ now. And yet literally, heaven starts now. Eternity starts now. It doesn't start when we die. Why should we, why should God, why would we want a relationship with someone for eternity if we don't want a relationship with them now? God just gives us what we want. If I were to say to you, your house is absolutely beautiful, you've got a stunning house, and I want to come and live in your house, but just one thing, I don't really like you, so would you move out? <laughs> you wouldn't be thrilled. And yet that's what we try to do with God. I really like heaven, but I don't really want a relationship with you. And we expect God to go, oh, okay then. No, if we don't want a relationship with him now, he will not force us to have a relationship with him for eternity. And the way we have that is through his son, Jesus Christ. What about our bodies? I've already said, when we die, our physical bodies die, but our spirits live on, either in paradise or in Hades. But God's plan was never just to have us as spiritual beings floating about. We were made to have physical bodies. So as great as paradise will be when we die and our spirits go to be with Jesus, that is not how we're going to spend eternity. The central message of the New Testament is this, is that humans will one day have a new resurrected 
body, that we will once again be whole people and be returned to how we were created to be before the fall. Before Jesus, no one had ever been resurrected from the dead. There had been three resuscitations, Lazarus being one, the daughter and, 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 and the other person that Jesus resuscitated. There had been three resuscitations, but those people all died again. Jesus was resurrected. He's the only person to come back to life and stay back to life. He will never die again. And Jesus' resurrection proved that death does not have to be the end. The greatest enemy of humanity was defeated. Death was beaten. And if it could be beaten by Jesus, then all of those who know him and love him can also beat it and have new resurrection bodies. And Paul says this clearly in 1 Corinthians 15. But Christ, this is what he says, has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits, the first example the, the, the template, the, the one that you look at to see what's going to happen to you of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, that's Adam, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man, that is Jesus Christ. For in Adam all die, and in Christ all will be made alive. In Christ. But each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, when he returns, those who belong to him. So Jesus is the first fruits. So if we want to know what our resurrection looks like, Let's look at Jesus' resurrection. As he was raised, we too will be raised in a physical bodily resurrection. I love what John Stott says. The resurrection of Jesus provides solid, visible, tangible, public evidence of God's purpose to give us new bodies and a new world. So we will live on a renewed earth and a resurrected perfect body. Now, I'm not saying that we get to choose our bodies, okay? I'm not saying that we get to, you know, write down our top ten things that we want on our body. You know, ladies, you know, I want, you know, you know, people say I want Jennifer Aniston's body, Sandra Bullock's face, and Katie Price's. Well, we don't want anything belonging to Katie Price because it's not real anyway. Um, but we will have a body which doesn't age or get sick or grow old or deteriorate—a healthy, whole body, free from aches and pains. That's why it says in verse 4 in Revelation 21, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Imagine having a place with no pain. Isn't that when, you know, most of us who have been with loved ones, probably parents or grandparents, isn't that our last wish that they won't suffer? Isn't that what we say? The dying we can almost handle as long as we don't watch them suffer. Imagine a place where there's never suffering, never pain, that you never bang your leg, that you never have a cut, that you never have mental uh, health problems, that you never have any of the, you never have cancer. You, there's, there's just no crying, no pain. That's what we were made for. We weren't created to suffer. We weren't created to ache. We weren't created to have pain. We were created to live for eternity. And that's why death always shocks us. Let's think about that. Death should not shock us. What's the statistics? One out of one people die. And yet every time somebody dies, we're shocked. Do you know why that is? It's not just because we love them in a grief. It's because deep down we know this is not the way it was meant to be. There is something in the human soul, in the human heart, in the human spirit that knows where we were created to live for eternity. And so every time a human dies, we go, this is not right. 
This is not the way we were created to be. I just was looking at photographs of my friend Juliet, who died in the last few days, my friend in Dublin. See images of me, left three kids. And as I look at her, she's a doctor. I look at her smiling face in these photographs. And I just go, this is not the way it was meant to be. A young mom in her early 40s, leaving three lovely children and her husband Colin. That is not the way it was meant to be. And yet, in this fallen, broken world, which is under the ravages of sin and rebellion against God, that is how it is. Next question, and we are nearly done, I promise you. Will we know each other in heaven? That's a question I get asked quite a lot. Will we know each other? Will we look the same as we do now? Will we want to look the same as we do now? Is it probably a better question? Or will we look different? And if we don't look the same, then how will people recognize us? I thought that little clip was quite good, but wasn't it that he said everyone's young in heaven? That's probably where I, I, I don't have a theological basis for that, but I do believe that everybody will be at that place in life where they were at their peak state, if you like. I believe if a baby died, I believe that we will get to see them as they would have been at that state. And if no, I just, I just, I don't know. I just believe that that's how it might be. That every person will be at that place where they were at their most healthy, perfect state. The Bible doesn't explicitly state what we'll look like. But if we go back to what it said about Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15. It said that Jesus is the first fruits, the first example. He's the template. He's the example. If you want to know what a resurrected body looked like, look at how Jesus' resurrected body was. And what was it like? After Jesus' resurrection, did he look the same? I think you're both right. He looked the same, but he looked different. There were similarities and there were differences. And the reason I know that, or I believe that, is in John 20, he's in the garden, and Mary doesn't immediately recognize him. But he says her name, and then she does. So he wasn't so radically different. The road to Emmaus, Luke 24, he travels seven miles with two guys who knew him. They don't recognize him, but he breaks bread and their eyes are opened and they recognize him. Thomas says, until I see the marks, and he shows him his hands and says, put your finger in there. So there must have been similarities. So there was continuity and yet he had a different body. There was a, there was a similarity but a difference. And when you think of the beating, if you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ He had to have a different body. He was beaten to a pulp. There had to be a restored body. And yet there was a continuity at the same time. So when we ask, will we recognize each other? Here's what I always say to people. When we think of recognition, we need to think of more than appearance. If somebody you know and love phones you, you don't need to see them to know it's them. If somebody you know and love walks into the room, you know it's them. You sense it. They say your name like Jesus did, Mary, Master. 
And so when we think about recognition, let's not get caught up in how we look. There is a deeper recognition than just appearance. Yes, I do believe some of it will be appearance, but I believe that there is a much deeper spur. You know, I, I was, even spiritually there's a recognition. Do you ever met, meet anyone and they don't say anything about God, but you just know they're a Christian? You just know. There's just something within you that just... I was talking to one of the personal trainers in One Fitness the other day and I'd never talked, spoken to her in my life and she just said, I knew you were a Christian. She just said, I just knew when I walked past you that, that, you, that you knew the Lord. And, and, and there's that sense we have with people. There's just a, a, a deeper recognition than just the physical, superficial appearance. And I believe that when we get to heaven, whatever whether that be up there or, or the new heaven and the new earth, there will be a recognition of our loved ones. I really do believe that. Because the Bible says God puts us in families. And not just physical families, but spiritual families. That actually we'll recognize each other as well. Which for some of you will be more appealing than it will for others. The Bible says that in 1 Corinthians 15. What kind of body will they come? That's what he's asking. Someone will ask how the dead raised. What kind of body? That's what he's asking. Well, what will they look like? What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the, bo- what the, plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. What he's saying is that your present earthly body, when it's buried, is like a seed which is planted. It dies and it forms that seed of your body and who you are right now forms the seed of your new resurrected body. Similarity, continuity, but difference. A seed is not the same as a tree, but the tree is hidden in the seed. And so your body, when it goes into the ground, or cremated, whatever it is, I don't know, but, but it forms the seed of your new resurrected body, whether you like it or not. Um, and it will be so much superior. We'll all have six packs and guns. Um, what will we do in heaven? Cliff Barrows and Billy Graham are having a conversation about what they do in heaven. And Cliff Barrows was a song leader for all the Billy Graham crusades. And he said to Billy, you know what? I think I'll have a job in heaven, but Billy, what are you going to do? Because <laughs> there'll be no souls to save. He'll be able to sing and worship, but there'll be no souls to save. And you know, I, I think this is one of the misconceptions is that when people talk about heaven, sometimes it can sound a bit boring. Let's be honest. It, sometimes it feels like one big long church service. And as much as I like church sometimes, um, I don't want to spend eternity in church. So we wonder, how will we put the time in? Well, in many ways, heaven will mirror God's very good creation. Earth as it was meant to be. And what happened? Well, the first thing God did was he gave Adam a job. So there would be work to do. It wasn't burdensome until after the fall, but it was enjoyable and rewarding. It was a responsible job. It was stewardship. And we don't know what would have happened if Adam had been obedient, but he was a steward of the entire planet. And so in eternity, God will give us responsibility. It says this in Revelation 22, 3. We will serve him, or his servants will serve him. And those who have been faithful over a few things on earth, he will make ruler over many things. So there will be stuff to do. We will worship God. 
And that's what we've seen. I'm not going to read all these verses, but we've seen this even this morning in Revelation 3. We saw it last week as Aaron looked at Revelation 4. That in heaven, there is just constant and continual worship. Now, that's not all we'll do, is sing. But everything we do is worship. Eating is worship. Hallelujah. Working is worship. Relaxing is worship. Relating and fellowship is worship. And all of everything, I honestly, I just think every time he even gaze towards the throne, we'll just be like, oh, worship. It just, it'll just be our most natural, it'll just be like worship. Like once you see how beautiful he is, how can you not just ascribe worship? It'll be, actually, I think we'll just have to tear ourselves away from worship to get stuff done. I don't think it'll be, oh, I've got to go to worship today for an hour. I hope it's over by 12.30. It'll be, I, oh, I've got to do some work, but I just want to worship. I'm going to worship as I work. Look, at the, look, he's on the throne. He's so beautiful. I just want to worship him. We will worship. We will serve God. Revelation 22, 3. No longer will there be any curse. The curse will be reversed. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will serve him. Yes, heaven is a place of rest, but rest does not mean idleness or laziness or inactivity. Rest is doing work that is fulfilling. We will not merely lounge around the pearly gates, gazing and getting a suntan from the glory of the throne. But the Bible says that the work in heaven will be restful, but it will be satisfying. It says that on the seventh day God rested in creation. And yet that wasn't the end of it. Because Jesus then said, my father is always at work. So the father, even right now, is at work. And as people who are made in the image and likeness of God, we were created to work. W.A. Criswell, who I quoted this morning, actually I've never quoted him twice in one day, um, but he, he made a very interesting point. We shall be the same person there as here. Our traits, abilities, personalities will be the same, only redeemed and glorified. Our lives, talents, gifts and abilities shall continue to be developed throughout all the ages. In heaven we shall be permitted to finish tasks we dream to do, but have had no opportunity or time or strength or ability to finish on earth. That's a lovely quote. That God, when he made you, he put things within you. He put characteristics and DNA and passion and gifts and all of that. Why would he give you them just for earth and not use them in eternity? They're just going to be better. They're going to be redeemed and glorified. We will reign with God and help administer the kingdom. We've seen that. I will give authority over the nations. We saw this in Revelation. With your blood you purchased me for God. You made them to be kingdom and priests to serve. Last, uh, Revelation 20. Blessed are those who have... um, Apart in the first resurrection, the second death is no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. We will reign with Christ. Depending on what we have done on this earth, we will be given levels of authority in the new heaven and the new earth. Depending on how we have stewarded what God has given us. You see, the judgment seat here, there's judgment seats, there's the judgment seat for those who reject Christ. And at that judgment seat, they go to hell. Then there's a the judgment seat for those who Follow Christ. And that's dependent on what we have done. How we have stewarded what God has given us. There's no hell in that. Every one of us are admitted to heaven. But how we have stewarded what Christ has given us. 
What we have done with the gifts and the talents and the money and all of that depends on... Remember he said those who have been faithful in little will be or those who have been faithful in little can be faithful with much. That what we have done, how faithful we have been here on earth will determine the level of responsibility and authority we get in heaven. Thirdly, we will enjoy God's presence and fellowship. It says that the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And that's really what heaven's about. Fully experiencing and knowing God. Like there's those moments in worship, there's those moments, and sometimes it's in church where you just sense God so close, he's so near, his presence is so tangible and so rich and so manifest. Imagine living right in the presence of God. Remember Moses said, show me your glory, and he said, nobody can see me and live. And yet in those days we'll be able to see him face to face. The greatest thing about heaven is not the new Jerusalem or the golden streets or the pearly gates. Or even that there's no pain and suffering. The greatest thing about heaven is that we see him in all his beauty and all his glory and all his majesty and all his love and all his supremacy that we will gaze upon the God that we have worshipped so inadequately down here and we will see him face to face and it will just be in his presence that we will just, we will love just being in his presence just to be in his presence this pure holy presence it will be the air we breathe his glory will be the air we breathe it says look in in verses 22-23 I didn't see a temple, why? because a temple was where you went to worship God you don't need to go to a temple when God's actually right in the middle of the whole place you don't need to go to a building he's here because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. And it doesn't need the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the lamp, Lamb is its lamp. No sad lamps this time of year for us, for those of us who get sad lamps. Uh, notice it says there's no temple. Because God is among his people. There's no church. His presence and glory are tangible. And because... Our sin has been dealt with. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Righteous, clean and pure. That's what I want. The streets of gold I can do without. The pearly gates and all that stuff. I I really don't care that much. I love what one old saint Samuel Rutherford said. This is one of my favourite quotes. I use it often in funerals. He said, oh my Lord Jesus Christ. If I could be in heaven without thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be a heaven to me. For thou art all the heaven I want. Heaven is only heaven because Jesus is there. You will never be more fulfilled or satisfied than anything from anything earth can give you. So finally, how does heaven affect our lives today? How does heaven affect our lives today? You know, in Northern Ireland, I'm not trying to be contentious, we can have dual nationality. In our family, some of us have Irish passports and some of us have British passports and some of us have both. Just because my son was born in Dublin. Um, I'm getting him a British one soon, don't worry. Brexit. Brexit's coming up. Um, if, if we can get there. Um, the views of Craig Cooney do not reflect the views of Hope Community Church. But they mostly do. Um, We can have dual nationality. 
We can be our citizens and British citizens at the same time. The Bible says when you become a Christian, you have dual citizenship. You're a citizen of the UK or Ireland, but you're also a citizen of heaven. You become a kingdom citizen. Colossians 1.3 says, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. We were in the dominion of darkness. That was Satan's kingdom. But he has rescued us. He has snatched us out of that and he's brought us into his kingdom. And our identity has been changed. Our citizenship has been transferred from one kingdom to another. At the minute, my son only has an Irish passport. He will have a British passport soon. His identity, his citizenship will be transferred. Philippi, um, Paul wrote a letter and he said this in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. He wrote this, it was a city just north of Greece, Philippi, and it was a Roman colony. And even though the people there weren't in Rome, they acted like Romans, they dressed like Romans, they spoke Latin, they used Roman coins, they had Roman customs and laws. Even though Rome was hundreds of miles away, Philippi was like a miniature Rome, it was like a mini Rome. And the people there considered it a great privilege to have Roman citizenship to be identified with such a great city. And so that's the imagery Paul is using here in Philippians. He's saying your citizenship is in heaven. You might live here on earth. You might be some physical distance from heaven. But if you're a Christian, your citizenship is in heaven. You belong to another kingdom. And so you adopt the lifestyle and the language of heaven. You adopt the morality of heaven. Your first loyalty is to heaven. A number of years ago, probably 10, maybe 12 years ago, I, I was friends with a guy called Dean Pittman. He was the, maybe 15 years now, actually. Um, he was the American consul to Northern Ireland. And uh, he was a lovely guy. And, and I got to know him quite well. Like, like the American ambassador, I guess. And the thing about Dean and, and, and ambassadors in general is this. They don't live in their home country, but everywhere they go, they represent their home country. And I was at his house for a big barbecue, and as soon as you drove up the driveway, there was a big American flag. And there was American security people. And there was American food and American music. And it felt like you were in South Carolina, not South Belfast, apart from the weather. He had come over here to a foreign country, but he had turned it into a little bit of America. And everywhere Dean went, he carried himself with great poise and respect and impeccable behavior. I never heard him say something out of turn about anybody. Why? Because he knew he was representing not just Dean Pittman, but the United States of America. He was fully engaged in life here. He lived here for five years, but this wasn't his real home. It was just a temporary stop. And you might live on this earth for 100 years, or 90 years, or 80 years, but if you're a Christian, the reality is this is not your real home. Your real home is in heaven. You're a citizen of another kingdom. You're an ambassador of Christ. You live in such a way as to make every place you go a little bit more like your real home. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to bring the culture of heaven every place we go. Finish with a wee story I heard. There was an American tourist visiting... This is a true story, apparently. American tourist visited a 19th century Polish rabbi called Hoftest Chaim. And he went into the rabbi's home and he was astonished to see that it was just a simple room filled with books plus a table and a bench. And the tourist said, Rabbi, where's your furniture? 
He said, where's yours? He said, well, mine, uh, the American said, I, I don't have any furniture because I, I'm just a, a visitor here. I'm just passing through. And the rabbi said, so am I. And while we live here and while we fully engage with the culture here and while we seek to bring Christ here, we understand that this is not the ultimate reality. But that we are citizens of heaven. That as a, many of you were here this morning, most of you, the string bit, that that string bit, that little bit is earth, that little bit is our temporary life. But we don't invest in the little bit. We invest in eternity. Hopefully there was a lot there, folks. Hopefully that has given you some, I realize there's probably a ton more questions. If I could recommend one book, if those, anybody wants to read more, there's a book by Randy Alcorn. It's a big book, but it, it goes into a lot of detail. A lot of the stuff I, I spoke on tonight came from that. So those of you who want to go into a bit more depth, I would recommend that. But hopefully that has cleared up some stuff. I just I realized recently I've sat in living rooms and I've answered a lot of these questions, and I want you to know the reality and the truth, and that is this, that death is not final. We need, that is something in our culture as Christians we need to really grasp that this is not it. But that death is a pause. It's a comma. And what we do in this life does affect eternity. But this life is not all there is. That we live for another kingdom and another place.